listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. The United States is facing the greatest crisis in the preservation of government of the people, by the people, and for the people since the decades of the 1850s and 1860s. The failure to think through and implement the necessary reforms of the 1850s led to the bloodiest and most difficult war in American history in the 1860s. A case can be made that the crises we are drifting into are comparable to the combination of the rise of the dictatorships during the Great Depression in the 1930s. That was Newt Gingrich speaking before Business Executives for National Security in Washington, D.C. last May 15th. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and this is the Jeff Nyquist Program. In this program, we're going to be talking with Newt Gingrich's co-author, Bill Forston, about their new book, Days of Infamy, and about active history, about World War II, and we're also going to talk about how World War II relates to our own time. In our recent novels, Pearl Harbor and Days of Infamy, Bill Fortune, Steve Hanser, and I have begun to describe an active history interpretation of how much worse things would have been if Admiral Yamamoto had led the Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. An aggressive, technologically advanced, risk-taking leader would have damaged the United States much more than the Japanese actually did. In researching the late 1930s in Asia, the most astounding reality is the degree of British self-deception. The result in the opening weeks of the war was a catastrophic and humiliating defeat in Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, and Burma, the failure to be honest about security threats and the realistic resources needed to meet them led to one of the greatest strategic humiliations in the long history of the British Empire. Today, America is decaying toward a decisive defeat comparable to the British in 1941. And a further statement from that same speech by Newt Gingrich. In this hour, we're going to be interviewing Bill Forston, co-author with Newt Gingrich of Days of Infamy. And we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. WIBG 1020, live, local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, it was one kick, they blew it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it, we talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. In our recent novels, Pearl Harbor and Days of Infamy, Bill Fortune, Steve Hanser, and I have begun to describe an active history interpretation of how much worse things would have been if Admiral Yamamoto had led the Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. With me is my special guest, William Forstian. He's a faculty fellow at Montreat College in Montreat, North Carolina. He received his doctorate from Purdue University and specialized in the American Civil War. He is the author of more than 40 books, including the award-winning We Look Like Men of War, a young adult novel about the African-American regiment that fought at the Battle of the Crater, which is based upon his doctoral dissertation. Uh, William is a pilot and currently flies an L-3, an original World War II recon plane. He resides near Asheville, North Carolina, with his daughter, Megan. Welcome to the program, Bill Forston. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. And 
rather amusing that you mentioned the plane because I'm actually down at the airport at the moment. Was just attending a board meeting and uh, was working on the plane earlier today. So, wow. uh, beautiful location up here in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Now, you have written a book. It's the second in a series. Yes, sir. The subject of America being surprised attacked by Japan in World War II, which is so rich in so many areas. Mm -hmm. You've written an alternate history, which allows you to bring out some uh, important characters in history. How did you come to write this with your co-author, Newt Gingrich? Well, Newt and I have been friends for over 15 years. Uh, we've written, actually, the current book, Days of Infamy, is our sixth book together. Uh, Newt coined the term active history rather than alternate history. Uh, alternate history, suppose Winston Churchill uh, had been killed back in the early 1920s or something. Uh, active history focuses instead on a decision-making process a crucial moment, a crucial turning point in history where a leader could have made a decision in a different direction and then how profoundly different our lives would be because of that. Hmm. So first we did a series on the Civil War, starting with Gettysburg, and then upon completion of that, our publisher asked us if we would consider something on World War II, and of course, Pearl Harbor was the natural to go with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, America is a country that we're, we're often surprised. And more than 20 years ago, I had the occasion to meet James Roosevelt. Oh, my God. He was the son of Franklin Roosevelt. And he was the chief of staff for his father for a time. And he was really knowledgeable about the decision-making uh, around FDR at the time of Pearl Harbor. And uh, I was always curious why the United States pushed the Japanese the way they did with the uh, cutting off of resources like oil. When the Japanese might not have attacked us, but simply attacked the British and the Dutch. And I was curious whether FDR considered that as a possibility. And um, what James said is he said, well, uh, we kind of knew they were going to go for us. And mm -hmm. it would have been bad if that had happened, but but we didn't think it would. That is a really tough question. Now, what, we have three hours uh, of airtime? We, we, we have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about how the war started, how Pearl Harbor happened, and, uh, and, and get a good grounding before we go forward. We'll have to go back to 1898 to 1905. 1898, upon the defeat of Spain... Uh, America acquired the Philippines and a presence, uh, actually we could define in Asia, along the coast of Asia. In 1905, the Japanese, the only non-European nation to really uh, be able to stop European and, and American imperialism, dealt a stunning defeat to the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, from that point on, both sides had a sense that sooner or later there was going to be a squaring off of who was going to be the top player in the Pacific. And as early as then, we were already developing plans if we were going to have to face the Japanese, and the Japanese were developing their plans as well, which were refined through the 20s and 30s. And then finally, the Japanese threw a left hook by, rather than attacking us in the Philippines, which we assumed they would, they struck us instead at Pearl Harbor on the opening act of the war. And, of course, uh, one of the things that precipitated this was that uh, there was already tension uh, over Japan's policy of expansion in China and then in Indochina. Uh, Newt and I wrote a very difficult scene 
regarding the Japanese invasion of China and the first book in the series, uh, Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese took the city of uh, Nanjing, uh, back then called Nanking, and it was referred to as the Rape of Nanjing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they murdered over a quarter of a million civilians, and this wow. was witnessed by Westerners. At the same time, they attacked an American ship uh, on the Yangtze, and our response was moderated. The Japanese claimed it was a mistake, but the brutality, the utter brutality of their imperialism in China was every bit as vicious and harsh as anything the Germans did in Russia, perhaps even worse. And there was a moral outcry in America. Remember, there was a strong missionary movement uh, in China throughout the 19th and into the 20th century. So many of these missionaries were writing back to their parishes saying, good Lord, the Japanese are doing this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a book published several years back called The Rape of Nanking, a brilliant young scholar who was Chinese-American, heard her family talking about the experience when she was growing up. She did her doctoral studies on it, wrote an award-winning book, and was so overwhelmed by the topic, she committed suicide. Oh, no. It became so obsessive to her. Mm. And I would add, I've been to Dachau. I've studied the atrocities in Europe. This overwhelmed me, some of the, the horrors that were committed there. Mm. So there was a moral outrage in America, but not yet to the point of going to war. Now, of course, part of that moral outrage meant that uh, President Roosevelt's policy was to try to restrict the Japanese through economic means. Yes. And uh, maybe you could describe a little bit about the embargo on Japan. We use the analogy in our novel, uh, Pearl Harbor, where we have a character who's an intelligence officer saying that the Japanese, the analogy is like the snake trying to swallow the elephant. Mm-hmm. They go into China and what they think will be a six-month war. The boys will be home by December. And they got in, but they couldn't get out. So it's a snake maybe starting on the trunk of the elephant, mm-hmm. gets halfway up, and suddenly they're stuck. They are trapped in a massive land war in Asia that they can't win, but they can't withdraw. And that's the crucial turning point when... We have moral outrage in the States. At the same time, the war in Europe has started. The Japanese now see open bait in front of them. The Dutch have been occupied by the Nazis. What about the Dutch East Indies? The French are openly collaborationists. There's the Vichy government. England is on the ropes. Maybe the Japanese are thinking, maybe we can take these resources, put them into our war machine, and then we can wrap up the war in China. Plus, we'll have an Asian empire. Yeah, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere is what they like to call it, isn't it? You know, uh, they were their own worst enemies. The Japanese uh, tried to turn it into a racial war. That, And they, they had a very valid question. Why are white Europeans ruling a fair part of Asia? Uh, our fellow Orientals, we come to liberate you. And usually within 24 hours after their troops arrived, uh, People who might have resented the Dutch, French, or American presence beforehand were begging for us to come back. Yeah, I know my uh, friends, Chinese friends and Indonesian friends I've made over the years, they hate the Japanese to this day. It's a tragic legacy. I uh, have a particular affinity for Mongolia. I spent four summers there. Uh, Mongolia fought a brief war with uh, Japan 1939-1940. 
the resentment is still intense. Hmm. You travel in China, you bring the subject up. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, and I've been in China several times. You mentioned that war, and it turns explosive. Now, you go to Pearl Harbor. The Japanese, of course, they wanted, they felt that in order to grab these resources to attack the Dutch East Indies and grab the oil and to take out the British in Malaysia and to occupy French Indochina, which they had already done before Pearl Harbor, they felt that they had to take out the American fleet in Pearl Harbor, have a decisive blow. And really, your main character in Days of Infamy, the second book in your series, is Admiral Yamamoto. And your premise is that he decides to lead the attack on Pearl Harbor instead of Admiral Nagumo. And, of course, Yamamoto is a very uh, interesting man. He's a very brainy psychological strategist, very much knows the American psychology, understands America, and has a vision, a real vision of how to win the war for Japan. Maybe you can tell me about how you and Newt decided to focus on Yamamoto as the main character here. Oh, gosh, again, I wish we had three or four hours. Yamamoto was a fascinating character. Uh, he studied in the United States. He attended Harvard. Uh, some of my southern friends joke, maybe that explains why what happened. He was a famous gambler. Uh, he claimed he had a system for winning and supposedly cleaned out a table one night at Monte Carlo. Hmm. Uh, he was a visionary. Remember when the Japanese and the Americans built their first two major carriers? We built the Lexington and Saratoga. They built the Akagi and Kaga. What was the capability of a plane then? 100 miles per hour to maybe carry about a quarter ton of bombs, 100 miles at most. And But Yamamoto was looking 10, 15 years into the future. And the air fleet he launched against us at Pearl Harbor was truly shock and awe of 1941, as stunning to the world then as what we witnessed in Desert Storm 1 and, and the current conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was an overwhelming blow. And that was indeed our turning point in our novel, that rather than a destroyer cruiser admiral who would see it as a raid, Yamamoto, if he had been there, after two attacks would have said, wait a minute, yeah, we sank the battleships, but where are the American carriers? They've got mm. to be nearby. We're going to go hunt them out. Yeah, because really the economic resources of the United States were several times greater than those of Japan. And in a long, prolonged war, Japan couldn't afford attrition. She had to make the most of this early advantage that she had. And Yamamoto, it, it was attributed to him that he said, I can give you six months, but then I can promise nothing more. Our historians... Our American, our European historians have fallen prey to our own propaganda, mm -hmm. where we have this vision that, oh, by 1943, the Japanese were planning to be somewhere in Denver where the Nazis would meet them and they, they would have global domination. Not true. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, both Germany and Japan looked at their struggles as limited wars of limited objectives. Yamamoto hoped that they could replicate what they did against the Russians. The war against Russia in 1904 opened with a surprise attack on the main base in the Pacific, analogous to Pearl Harbor. A Russian fleet sortes from the Atlantic coast. It takes them months to get into the Pacific, where Tsushima and Yamamoto was there and was wounded in that battle. The Russian fleet sinks, totally destroyed, and the Russians agree to a settled brokered agreement. 
the Japanese were hoping for the same thing. Wipe out our main fleet. Approximately six months later, the Americans would send their Atlantic fleet out. That gets sunk, and then the Americans, mean Americans, would go, oh, hell, it's not worth fighting about. Okay, we'll go to a negotiated settlement. Ironically, the Battle of Midway was almost exactly six months later. But it had a very different result than the Japanese ever anticipated. Yeah, it certainly did. With me is Bill Forston. He's the author with Newt Gingrich of a new book, Days of Infamy. And we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. At 10.20 a.m. or WIBG.com, we're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more. WIBG 10.20, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 10.20, we're everywhere. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. All right, we're back. And with me is William Forstchen. He's the author of Days of Infamy, and we're discussing the early days of World War II in the Pacific and uh, the role that Admiral Yamamoto played. And in this uh, version of history that, uh, what was it that Newt Gingrich called it again? Active history? Active history, yeah. In this active history, Admiral Yamamoto himself personally leads the attack on Pearl Harbor with a different result. And I, I have a question for you about this. Um, you know, we have now with modern sociology and sociological thinking, people have come, historians have come to diminish the role of the individual, uh, the leader, the individual personality in history. But, but your retelling of it really does uh, show us how important the individual is. Uh, well, when you work with a guy like Newt Gingrich, who was Newt Gingrich in 1974? A professor of history? A very junior professor of history at a small college in Georgia who had a vision, and 20 years later he led nearly a revolutionary movement in terms of the contract with America in the election of 94. Mm-hmm. One man who had a vision and then had the guts to see it through and did it. So both Newt and I are devotees of uh, the great man, and, and to be gender-sensitive, the great man, the great woman thesis in history that one person can make a profound difference in our futures. And uh, we've, we've never subscribed to the concept of the collective or that we're victims uh, who can just lamely sit by and, and not make a change. That's very refreshing. With uh, our study on Yamamoto, yes, one man makes a difference. And as the book Days of Infamy as well, you have a pugnacious Halsey who says, I will put everything on the line and I will fight back. I'm not going to turn tail on this one. Now, it's interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Admiral Yamamoto. You show what a real nice man he was, what a good man he was. And also you show how, in his understanding of American temperament, he uses his knowledge of American nature to try to bait the Americans. Yamamoto was, was well exposed uh, to America, as were hundreds of Japanese officers, particularly naval officers. The Japanese Navy was modeled after the British Navy. Um, Togo, who's considered like the godfather of the Japanese Navy, actually studied in England. So they had an intimate understanding and knowledge of us. And when you look at the historical record of how the war was fought, the Germans, in part, were the role model for the Japanese Army. 
we and the English were the role model for the Japanese Navy. Hmm. The two branches of service fought very different wars. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, what's interesting is in this war, and, and you get the sense from your book, and in this war, the calculations that are made in the precision and the weapons and the, the kind of difficulties of naval warfare, it's an amazing feat to bring an aircraft carrier fleet all the way across from Japan to Hawaii and fight a war. That was the shock and awe of 1941. Uh, carrier doctrine in the 30s, the carrier was supposed to be the auxiliary. Send the spotter planes up, find the enemy fleet, then let the battleships close in and do their thing. The carrier was way too vulnerable. Yamamoto turns around and masses six of them together and launches a massive airstrike of somewhere around 350 aircraft. Nobody could even conceptualize that. That's why it was such a shocking blow to us. Part of my research, I flew the Japanese attack I rented a World War II period aircraft and flew the attack route across Oahu, and it really shocked me. Hmm. The Japanese were in and out in less than 10 minutes. The movie takes an hour, hour and a half to fight the battle out. Yes, there were Japanese aircraft over Pearl Harbor for about two hours, mm-hmm. but the bombers, the killing blow, they came in, they dropped their loads, they got out. It was over within about five to ten minutes. Wow. The second strike came in was not as effective because of the confusion and smoke. But the loss of all our battleships, boom, ten minutes. Hmm. Remember 1991 when we saw the opening of the air war against Iraq and how we just set their stunt. Yes, the effectiveness of air power. And, uh, of course, now in real life and in your book as well, Admiral Halsey is out of Pearl Harbor. In fact, uh, America has three aircraft carriers in the Pacific, the Lexington, the Saratoga, and the Enterprise. And they're all, they're not together in a giant fleet. They're off doing different things. Uh, maybe you can explain that. I'm glad you, you raised that one because that, that's a favorite thing with conspiracy theorists, why the carriers were not there. But if, if you go back and you look at the historical record and the logs, the Enterprise, uh, was returning back from Wake Island after having delivered uh, a squadron of fighters and got caught by the tail end of the storm that the Japanese had been using as well. They couldn't refuel their destroyers that evening. They had to slow down. The intent was Enterprise was supposed to be tying off at Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7th. Oh, wow. If not for the storm, they would have been literally maneuvering the ship in the harbor when the attack wave came in. Hmm. Lexington was outbound towards Midway, ferrying a squadron of fighters out there. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, we had slipped Saratoga back to the American West Coast for a refit, and it was preparing to come back out. Uh, in fact, in January, it did. So the Saratoga was, was thousands of miles away. Saratoga was already on the American West Coast. Mm-hmm. wasn't anywhere even near the Japanese intelligence had failed to pick that up, and they thought there were three carriers out there. In fact, there were only two. Wow. That shows you how important intelligence is. It's why in our novels uh, are two intelligence officers working in cryptoanalysis. We have a British to provide that view, and the American character providing the American view on that. Yeah. Now, let's talk for a minute about uh, Admiral Halsey. 
who in World War II was very uh, famous and, and was involved in many battles. He actually did not command the carriers at the Battle of Midway, which is, which is ironic because he was, uh, maybe you can explain. Well, he had, uh, I forget the name of it, a, a skin disease that was driving him crazy, some sort of tropical skin infection. So Halsey was in bed, which drove the poor guy crazy. So a, a battleship admiral took command of the American carriers at Midway. And did a superb job. And did a superb job. And, of course, now Halsey was also famous later in the war in the Battle of Lady Gulf. Maybe you could tell us what he did in that battle that might characterize his psychology. Well, we... Okay, you caught it. Yes. Uh, a, you caught it. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> you win the award. You're the first interview I've done where you caught it. Yeah, well, you. I mean, it's good. I mean, you got his character down. You, you, you got his trait down. Uh, what you've done is uh, we patterned all these reactions and a fictional situation where Yamamoto's in command, and the next day he correctly surmises the American carriers had to be somewhere west or south of Oahu. He baits a trap. Mm-hmm. Halsey goes for it. Halsey is very aggressive. And at Leyte Golf, the Japanese did an elaborate plan, which came within a hair's breadth of really being rather successful. And at a crucial moment, the Japanese exposed their carriers letting the Americans see them, knowing that it would lure him away. And Halsey takes his main fleet and goes in hot pursuit, leaving the beaches at uh, Leyte all but defenseless, except for a couple of jeep carriers and some light destroyers. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend the book. I believe the title is Last of the Tin Can Sailors, or Tin Can Sailors is part of the title. And it's a brilliant book mm. about that battle. Uh, I think the task group was Taffy 3 or Taffy 5, which was some light jeep carriers and some destroyers facing off against Japanese battleships and hurling them back. It's incredible. And, of course, MacArthur was landing in the Philippines there at, at Leyte, and, um, and, of course, the whole landing was put into jeopardy. Yes, it was. Yeah. Some destroyers and some jeep carriers charged Japanese battleships. Mm-hmm. And the heroism of our pilots, when they were out of ammunition, they'd go back, refuel. There was no more ammunition for them, and they were like, just get me back up there. I'm going to buzz the blank, blank, blanks to keep them busy. Yeah. And the Japanese admiral was so startled, he was like, well, gosh, there's got to be bigger shits behind them if they're this aggressive. I'm getting out of here. And uh, you really studied the characters that you're putting in your active history to show what their reactions would be with a different set of circumstances from different leadership on the other side. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, of course, there's going to be, I, I, I'm interested, the next book. You, you guys have got to have another book coming out after this one. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, Newt and I, uh, we, we sort of have our little master plan, and we're figuring somewhere between 6 to 12 uh, books. I mean, there, there's just such an open field of what we can do on this topic. And we really enjoy working together. I, I've always got to emphasize, Newt is not a vanity author. There are so many books out there where they put some guy's name on top, mm-hmm. and we don't know somebody else was there. Newt and I work as a team. Well, there was something I didn't know about uh, Newt Gingrich that was in the little uh, bio piece here. It said that uh, 
that he is uh, the longest serving teacher of the joint war fighting course for major generals. Yes, he is. That's remarkable. Was he doing that while he was uh, in Congress? Uh, yes, he was. He was wow. advising on that. Uh, it's a renaissance man, and I'm not saying that for any PR value or anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newt's a voracious reader. He's one of Amazon's top 500 book reviewers. He reads about a book a day. Wow. Now, uh, let's talk to, about some of the other characters in this book. You've got Franklin Roosevelt. You've got Churchill. Let's talk about uh, FDR for a second. Uh, what is your take on uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and, and, and how do you see his role in this uh, as president, as leader of the nation? And, and, and I'll preface it by one thing. You have a, uh, Admiral Yamamoto uh, has this thought in your book that the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, which is the way we greeted it, was a terrible disaster for Japan, that Japan should have declared war honorably first. Yes. Why don't you talk about that and the way President Roosevelt exploited the the way Pearl Harbor was attacked? Yamamoto understood the American psyche. He understood the American nature of war, the way we view war. What arouses Americans to a fever pitch is if it's a moral crusade, where we have a sense of betrayal and stab in the back, which we witnessed on September 11, 2001, mm-hmm. in which thousands of innocent Americans were brutally murdered in a most cruel way by a cowardly opponent. Uh, Yamamoto, when analyzing how can we defeat the Americans, had specifically stated that we must declare war first. And at one point, it was pointed out to him, our losses will be astronomical. We could lose 100 to 150 pilots. We might even lose a couple of carriers if the Americans are forewarned. And his response was, better that than a nation that's united and aroused. Mm-hmm. We did not want to get into a war in 1941. American public opinion goes, oh, hell, it's not worth it. Let's just negotiate and get out. Besides, this is a war more about the Dutch and the French and the English than it is us. Mm-hmm. So when Yamamoto first got word that the attack went in, the famous Torah, Torah, Torah moment, and that the Americans had no defenses up, and then within minutes, as he broadcast about a sneak Japanese attack, and then within a couple of hours, a broadcast how the Japanese ambassador shows up an hour after the attack starts, he was outraged. Mm-hmm. He felt betrayed and outraged. And uh, and and this was, do we know why it exactly happened in this way? It was other people decided they wanted this kind of surprise? In part, yes, and also, frankly, it's the way bureaucracies work. Mm-hmm. I think never give anything to a bureaucracy that you want done correctly. Uh, those who are students of this are familiar with how the Japanese uh, translator for the code, he couldn't figure it out, and then the poor guy sitting there with two fingers trying to type out the formal message, and then the form of the last part of the message is sent late. Uh, the appointments kept getting postponed. And, in fact, even the wording of it was not a declaration of war, but just simply saying we're breaking off talks, hmm. which was something Yamamoto was not aware of. Wow. So the strategy and the politics got mixed up, the different actors. Mm-hmm. They weren't all on the same page. One of your bureaucrats ever on the same page. Yeah, that's true. I mean, war, I mean, we've seen it. It's one series of, of mix-ups after another. And, of course, 
Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was very astute to exploit it. Uh, the day of infamy from his speech uh, uh, on the following day, uh, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that. You know, there's a very Victorian ring to that speech when you listen to it. Uh, day of infamy, dastardly attack. These are words that are not in our lexicon anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a Victorian sense, a Victorian high, as did Winston Churchill, of a concept of honor. And yes, he was profoundly morally outraged by uh, the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor on Sunday morning. Uh, This was something that in the Victorian sense, gentlemen simply did not do. And it aroused an entire nation. Only three days before, the mainstream media, uh, the Chicago Tribune, had leaked on its front page America's secret plans for war. Now, these are simply nothing more than your standard war planning scenarios of uh, known as Plan Black and Plan Orange and the Rainbow Plans. They leaked it. They put it right on the front page of the paper for the whole country to see. And there's a political cartoon of the Midwestern states, Illinois looking like Abe Lincoln, uh, staring towards the East Coast where you see a picture of the White House, and then written above it in big, shiny letters is war hysteria. Mm. There was there was a strong anti-war uh, stay-out-of-it movement in America. And there's a lot about the man I do not like. A lot of that is politics I don't like. I think some of the aspects of the New Deal are way overblown. But on the other side of the coin, he knew that Western civilization was in a struggle for survival. And we might very well have lost. Yeah. It was the great matchup of the 20th century. Western liberal, liberal in the old sense, Western liberal democracy versus totalitarianism. And it was a very near-run thing. And, of course, the German panzers in 1941 were marching over Russia, approaching Moscow. They'd captured the Ukraine. You had Britain was being strangled by U-boats. You had Rommel uh, invading Egypt. And that was a very near-run thing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the British had to make a long retreat back to... Uh, Back in, deep into Egypt, and Rommel followed them there. So it was a, it was a very. People don't realize how touch and go this war was, and of course uh, Germany, with all of Europe under its heel, had tremendous resources if they could only be mobilized. And of course, if the Japanese had been able to release their army after a victory in China, then that army would have been free to go where they wanted. So the United States had to be prepared for what looked like the possible victory of both Japan and Germany in Asia and Europe. And and something I feel is very, very important to point out, because the analogy is very pertinent to today. In 1941, the single thing that perhaps concerned Roosevelt and Winston Churchill the most was a weapon of mass destruction. Mm. Einstein had written his famous letter uh, a year and a half earlier, warning that the Germans had a significant lead in research on nuclear weapons. It is one of the reasons Roosevelt felt felt so passionately about America's going to have to get into this, because we have to drive a stake through the heart of Nazism before they get atomic weapons. And, of course, what they didn't know is the Japanese were further ahead in atomic warfare research than the Germans. Japanese were doing it, too. 
And this was a secret known by less than a couple hundred people in 1941. And, of course, we know the irony of it is that it wasn't until about February 1945 that we realized the Germans, in fact, were behind us. I see a significant analogy to what happened with Iraq in 2003. Mm-hmm. The intelligence reports indicated a serious threat. And I would maintain, yes, we did take out the weapon of mass destruction. His name was Saddam Hussein. In 1945, his name was Adolf Hitler. Yeah, now let's talk about Hitler for a minute, because a very curious thing about this, I mean, uh, this whole era is so fascinating with curiosities. Hitler, a few days after Pearl Harbor, and and you kind of uh, bring this into the end of your book, he prepares a Fuhrer announcement. He declares war on the United States, which is astonishing because he didn't have to do that. It was madness. There was an article written about 15 years ago that speculated, was the leak through the Chicago Tribune a game within a game? Because Hitler specifically was handed a copy of the Chicago Tribune only several days later. Hmm. And he said, see, the Americans are planning to attack us, so why don't we just go ahead and do it? Yeah. The offensive against Russia had bogged down in front of Moscow on December 7th, 1941, and the Siberian troops were counterattacking and throwing the Germans back. Yeah, and of course the the temperatures fell, and the Germans were suffering such severe frostbite, they had to give a strike a medal called the Order of the Frozen Meat. Right. Uh, I have a friend who has one. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. I, I have a close friend who was a Leningrad front, and he has the desperation for the 41 campaign and for others. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, an honorable gentleman. And that was a pretty terrible place to be in 1940, late 1941, was to be in front of Moscow facing these reserve Russian troops and these low temperatures. A nightmare. Yeah. If I slip and fall out here in the night and nobody figures it out, I'll be dead within a matter of an hour. We're talking with William Forston. This is the Jeff Nyquist program, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. On air or online, we're Life Radio 1020 WIBG. Christian news talk with purpose and passion from early in the morning. Now in life, you're allowed to support whoever you want, but in partisan politics, there are rules. To Rosemont Afternoons. Someone suspects they're an illegal immigrant. The cop is more afraid of arresting them than of letting them go. Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays. That's how you're battling it. I like that. We're not going to ignore it. And Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. I think that's more than reasonable. I certainly, you know, we're talking about... $12 million here. I don't think any reasonable person would blame you one bit. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me is William Forston, who together with Newt Gingrich has written a new book about the Pacific War, Days of Infamy. It follows the previous book, Pearl Harbor, and it is Active history, it is not exactly what happened. It is a imaginative recreation based on the idea that certain leaders and their thinking could influence history and things could turn out differently. Uh, would that, would that be correct, Professor Forston? Oh, it's, it's Bill, please. Uh, oh, Bill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. the difference again between active history and alternate history, I'm a big fan of Harry Turtle Duff. 
Mm. Uh, he's written some really cool books. We've been friends for 20 years. Harry plays more in the realm of alternate history. Uh, suppose McClellan had been more aggressive at the Battle of Antietam. Uh, those type of things. Mm-hmm. Active history. Remember, Newt Gingrich's fascination with leadership and how a leader can have a vision and can educate and mobilize and how one person can change the whole course of history. One of Newt's favorite heroes, as is mine, is Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Imagine a world today if Ronald Reagan had not been president. Well, that may be the world we're facing now. We could go there, but I think that'd take another three hours, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, very good, very good. Don't take me there. Okay, but but I mean, uh, I mean, Hitler's decision to declare war—we'll go back to what we were talking about before. Hitler's decision after Pearl Harbor to declare war on the United States, which was a very curious thing, was made because he felt the U.S. was coming after Nazi Germany anyway. Exactly, and his attitude was. Well, the Americans have been supplying the Brits all along. They've been propping them up. They're now propping the Russians up. So let's just go at it. To which his army was, well, good heavens, we're bogged in Russia. Mm-hmm. Our offensive against the English is, there's, there's no prospect of us invading England on until we defeat Russia. Why are you declaring war on the United States? Uh, I've often thought about it, talked about it. Suppose instead the Germans had played a double game on us. And somebody said, oh, my gosh, you know, you're victims of Japanese imperialism. We're no longer going to send our submarines into the Western Atlantic. Uh, we're, we're just going to constrain our operations around England. There's no way Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt could have gotten America into the war in Europe. Hmm. And remember, Roosevelt and Churchill held their breath for three days uh, from December 8th when we declared war in Japan until December 11th when Germany declared war on us. But they knew that was the main enemy. I mean, Hitler being this big leader in Germany uh, who was not uh, easily curbed, um, he did not understand American psychology, did he? Not at all. Uh, in fact, he was a fan of, there was a German author who wrote Westerns. And as a boy, Hitler read them and was totally enthralled by them. In the 1930s, he had to be disabused of the fact that it was still not cowboys, Indians, and the United States cavalry out there in the West. Hmm. He still had that image of us in the 1930s. So he really, he didn't keep up on American affairs. And of course, he didn't speak any language other than German. And his racism blinded him. Ah. Thank God. Thank God. He... Pardon the expression, I'll have to clean it up slightly. He said Americans were addled on Negro jazz, mm-hmm. that we mixed races, that the Jews ran New York. Thank God for his racism, because his racism drove people like Albert Einstein and some of the greatest minds in the world to America as a place of refuge and hope. And, of course, it was uh, Hitler's ignorance then that uh, basically undid him in this part of the war. He had run a successful war while it was in limited to the powers that he was able to strike down one by one. But then when he got into Russia and then the United States got into it, that's when he got into serious trouble. And, uh, you know, we had, and you bring this up at the end of your book, we had a Germany first policy. We really recognized, FDR recognized that Germany was the more dangerous of the two countries. A very good point. And several years back, I, I helped a very close friend, General Don Bennett, 
He retired as a four-star or superintendent of West Point, and he was first wave in on Omaha Beach. He passed away a couple of years ago. The book I helped him write was uh, called Honor Untarnished. General Bennett said, yes, we fought the Germans. We fought them professionally. We fought them as the enemy. He said, a lot of my men didn't have that visceral sense of what we were fighting until we got into Germany. Mm-hmm. And we saw the camps. And the first time we came across a Jewish family that had been hiding in an attic for four years, and the way the family came out of the house, and the mother was holding a two- or three-year-old girl who was shaking like a leaf. The reason why? She was looking up at the sky. This child had never seen the sky before. Wow. And General Bennett said, from that moment on, my men knew what they were fighting against and what we were fighting for. Whereas in the Pacific, from day one, there was this visceral sense of, okay, guys, you started it, but we're going to finish it. Mm-hmm. America really didn't get that total sense until late in the war as to just how terrifyingly evil the leadership of Nazi Germany truly was. But uh, FDR seemed to have a sense of it, and Churchill had a sense of it before the most of the British political leaders had any sense of how really dangerous Hitler was. Oh, I, I thank God for Winston Churchill. He is one of my greatest heroes. He sacrificed England to save the world. Remember his famous speech of, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the landing fields, we will fight them in the streets, we will fight them in the hills. We will never surrender. Mm-hmm. But then also in that speech, he goes on to say that even if England does fall, we will buy enough time that in the end, the new world will come to save the old. He was willing to put England on the line, if need be, see England destroyed, if it could slow Hitler down long enough for America to wake up. And it was America waking up was a very difficult thing. It was extremely mm-hmm. difficult because we... In America, we are a kind of insular, we're a world unto ourselves, and we don't really understand the outside world, do we? Well, let me go modern for a second. Uh, your listeners, uh, I'm going to ask them to go on YouTube and look up two words, far for, F-A-R-F-O-U-R. The other word, Nahul, N-A-H-O-U-L. These are two Barney-like characters on a Middle Eastern TV show, teaching three-year-old children to be suicide bombers, teaching three-year-old children to kill infidel Americans and Zionist murderers. Hmm. Wow. So we talk about being ignorant in 1941. We're still ignorant today. Wow. Well, uh, Bill Forston, uh, Days of Infamy, a sequel to Pearl Harbor. Uh, do you have any final thoughts to leave with us um And any hints about your next coming book? I think the main thing is that last Friday was the anniversary of D-Day. It's almost been two-thirds of a century. Mm -hmm. There's so few of them left. And I I beg anyone who comes across a veteran of that great conflict, go up and shake their hand. Tell them thank you. Thank you for my freedom. And when you're going through an airport and you see somebody heading out or coming back and you can spot them, take a minute just take a minute and say, you're the greatest generation. That's what I say to her. I say, you guys, you're my greatest generation. You're protecting me today. And my daughter sleeps well tonight because of you. Yeah, we, we have a lot to be grateful for in this country. Thank you, Bill Forston, and I recommend your book, Days of Infamy. It is fascinating, active history. Thanks, uh, Bill. This was great. 
and it's been great talking with you. I really enjoyed it. Well, it's 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 good. I, I it's pretty interesting stuff. Thank you. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host Jeff Nyquist. Some radio stations are just noise and chatter. WIBG 1020 AM is radio with a passion and purpose. From early in the morning to Grossman Afternoons, Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays, and Dan Klein South Jersey Insider. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and we know about World War II. We've been talking to Bill Forstian about what happened after Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is not something that can't happen again. The United States has a talent for being surprised by its enemies, and uh, we all need to think about that. World War II and active history could be history repeating itself with us today. Let me end the program, the Jeff Nyquist program, with these following words from, again, Newt Gingrich's speech before business executives for national security. And here's Newt Gingrich. Let me start with, with some things that have happened since um, I drafted this in the last few days. Uh, Tom Friedman wrote a column entitled The New Cold War, uh, which says, uh, yes, the next president is going to be a Cold War president, but this Cold War is with Iran, and goes on to say, for now, Team America is losing on just about every front. Uh, Mike Hayden, uh, head of the CIA, uh, had an article in which he talked about the rising Chinese influence. There's an article uh, in the Washington Post pointing out that the U.S. is now increasing its estimate of North Korean plutonium production. Um, this morning there was a report that a 12-year-old suicide bomber had killed 23 in Iraq, um, that an Israeli shopping mall had been hit by uh, missiles fired from Gaza as sort of the Hamas method of celebrating the 60th anniversary. Uh, and I commend to all of you uh, Secretary Gates' speech to the Heritage Foundation uh, on May 13th, uh, where I think he's largely right and uh, much of what I'm going to say might, might be seen as Gates plus a whole lot rather than a, a contradiction or disagreement. Uh, I thought General Cartwright set up my talk when he said uh, we have got to think bigger. A case can be made that the crises we are drifting into are comparable to the combination of the rise of the dictatorships during the Great Depression of the 1930s. However, the relative scale of the American economy and the underlying strength of American patriotic belief made it likely that the United States would in fact ultimately triumph first over the Nazi Germans, fascist Italians, and Imperial Japanese, and then 50 years later over the Soviet Empire. And let me say as two asides, first, I don't know of anyone who's ever written of that 70-year struggle as an extraordinary victory of democracy and the rule of law over four different parallel systems that were threatening it. And second, uh, the primary reason Pearl Harbor does not work as a model is that we were, in fact, with remarkable leadership by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, fundamentally rearming long before Pearl Harbor. Every major ship that fought in World War II had been authorized before Pearl Harbor. The Army had already been expanded by a factor of 10 before Pearl Harbor. The margin of economic power, cultural strength, and institutional professionalism has eroded over the last generation. At the same time that America has become less capable, our potential opponents have multiplied in numbers and dramatically increased their capabilities. 
Our military capabilities actually mislead us into vastly overestimating our strength relative to potential opponents. Our military capability is a lagging indicator reflecting the capital investments of the past in technology, equipment, and training. In our recent novels, Pearl Harbor and Days of Infamy, Bill Fortune, Steve Hanser, and I have begun to describe an active history interpretation of how much worse things would have been if Admiral Yamamoto had led the Japanese fleet of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. An aggressive, technologically advanced, risk-taking leader would have damaged the United States much more than the Japanese actually did. In researching the late 1930s in Asia, the most astounding reality is the degree of British self-deception. The plans for protecting Malay and Singapore were ludicrous and impossible. The resources needed to offset the rising Nazi-German threat in Europe made it literally impossible to provide resources for the defense of British interests in Asia. Yet the British defense bureaucracy and political leadership found it equally impossible to confront the rising Japanese challenge and intellectually to think through either a dramatic change in strategy or a dramatic change in resources. The result in the opening weeks of the war was a catastrophic and humiliating defeat in Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, and Burma, the failure to be honest about security threats and the realistic resources needed to meet them led to one of the greatest strategic humiliations in the long history of the British Empire. Today, America is decaying toward a decisive defeat comparable to the British in 1941. Strategic requirements are much more than immediate military power. Strategic requirements have to include intellectual power, economic strength, a clear understanding of what threatens America and what needs to be done to meet those threats, and institutional systems defined by achievement and professionalism rather than by process and bureaucracy. On every one of these fronts, the United States is decaying, and there is no sign that there is any significant reform in sight. Strategic planning for a country should reach out 15 to 25 years. In the Hart-Rudman Commission, in which I was privileged to serve and General Boyd led so ably as executive director, we looked out 25 years in a fundamental effort to understand what needed to be done. And let me say, had that commission not lasted three years and put the three years in at a serious level, we would not have gotten to the conclusions we did because it took that long to actually look at something, think about it, rethink it, re-argue it, and finally begin to reach fundamental conclusions. That report, released in March 2001, stands the test of time as an analysis, but the efforts to adjust since then have been weak and ineffective. In fact, I think there's a direct parallel between a nation at risk, which came out 25 years ago in April, uh, and said that what we are doing to our children is so bad that if it were done by a foreign country, we would consider it an act of war. And it led to no fundamental change. And I would argue Hart Rudman in many ways had the same impact. It was essentially intellectually right, and the large bureaucracies adopted those pieces of it that were least painful. The greatest strategic threats to the United States come from a rising Chinese system of economic, scientific, and military power, a resurgent autocratic Russia using energy wealth to rebuild military power in a, in a decaying and declining population base, an aggressive and dedicated effort by the irreconcilable wing of Islam to defeat the West, eliminate Israel, and impose a fascist Islamic dictatorship, 
a growing number of rogue regimes eager to acquire weapons of mass murder, mass destruction, and mass disruption to protect themselves against the democracies and enable them to impose their will on their neighbors, and an emerging system of pseudo-legality sustained by a bureaucratic international elite which weakens the democracies, protects the vicious and the evil, and absorbs the energy of decent countries into endless maneuvers of utter impotence and dishonesty. These five threats are evolving in parallel and sometimes in synergistic coordination with each other. Any American grand strategy would have to take into account all five threats and would have to be designed to overmatch all five. One of the tragedies of the last two administrations has been their unwillingness to confront how large and how difficult the challenges to American security have become. The current American efforts are too small, too unimaginative, and too timid. America needs a deep and fundamental debate about the challenges we face, the threats which could destroy America, and the strategic options which must be explored. Either America has to reduce its strategic goals to accept a declining place in the world, or America has to reform fundamentally its systems to enable it to achieve its worldwide goals. Equivocating in between these two choices will risk disaster. Let me be very clear. America faces the very real risk of a Chinese system more scientifically advanced, more bureaucratically effective, and with a larger economy capable of focusing more of its resources on national instruments of power. America faces the very real threat of the Russian autocracy supplying advanced weapons to every nation and movement interested in eroding American power and eager to form alliances against American power on an opportunistic basis. America faces the very real danger that the forces of both Shia fanaticism, largely Iranian-funded and led, and Sunni fanaticism, largely Saudi and indigenously funded, but with increasing coordination with the Iranians, have gained a strategic momentum both politically and in military terrorist capabilities. America faces the extraordinary danger that rogue states and rogue movements will acquire nuclear, radiological, biological, and computer systems that can impose enormous damage on America and her allies. America faces a growing problem of a pseudo-legality sustaining an impenetrable, unaccountable, and often corrupt international bureaucracy, which has actually made it harder to solve problems in Rwanda, Sudan, Zimbabwe, and other zones of terror, murder, kleptocracy, and brutality. Faced with these large systemic challenges, the current generation of leaders in both parties are refusing to deal with the scale and the urgency required for continued American prosperity, safety, and freedom. That was Newt Gingrich. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This has been the Jeff Nyquist Show. I hope you'll join us again next week at this same time. You've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.